Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, Director of Content at Steinway & Sons and Editor-in-Chief of the online music magazine ListenMusicCulture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist and Emmy Award-winning composer Chris Bowers. His projects include the scores to the film Green Book and the series Dear White People and Bridgerton. Let's jump right into it. I watched Green Book last night, oh, uh. which amazingly I hadn't seen yet. And as a director of content for Steinway, that's inexcusable. So <laughs> I figured this was my opportunity to catch up on it. Nice. You wrote the score. Did you advise Mahershala Ali on how to play piano? And they cut you in your hands. It was your hands on, on those Steinways. Is that correct? Yeah, for the most part, I'd say like the majority of it is is actually my body and they, they did head replacement. So it's Mahershala's head on my body for a lot of it. I worked with him for about three months giving him lessons and um, was able to finally teach him a couple of the melodies and things like that. So some of the simpler passages might actually be him playing them, actually. And then anything that's a bit more difficult is uh, is definitely me playing. You didn't have a lot of room in that score, I felt like, because that movie's so tight. Like a lot of those biopics, you want to give it this sense of inevitability. Sure. You had a lot of great moments, but it really seemed like you had to get in and get out. I wonder if you could talk to me about some of the challenges of the score for that particular movie. The biggest challenge really was trying to figure out what sound... um could be different enough from Don Shirley's piano music while at the same time still sounding like it was inspired by him and inspired by the world that we were watching. In a lot of ways, that really came to fruition uh, when I started looking at what Don Shirley's influences are. And so a lot of the score, even though it has this somewhat traditional, like even Thomas Newman-y sound to it, uh, a lot of the themes and melodies are inspired by Negro spirituals and, and gospel hymns, since that's one of the things that Don Shirley was really inspired by. And then also trying to orchestrate it in a bit more of a classical way to showcase like the classical interest that he had as well. So I feel like that was the biggest challenge there. I actually particularly don't mind when cues are short or really intentional, just because um, my favorite movies to watch actually are, are often films that don't have very much music. Because, you know, I think that then that means that the acting is so good that the music is really just used in moments where it's necessary. And I think this is one of those instances in in addition to uh, having so much music, not only like source music, but also Don Shirley's music in itself. That's an excellent point. The music doesn't become a crutch in that way, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I wonder if sometimes those parameters, like you said, short intentional cues, does that help your focus as a composer? Yeah, it definitely does. You know, I think um, one of the first things that we do with the director, once they have a picture that we can work with, usually is to go through and do what's called a spotting session where we decide where music comes in and where it comes out. 
it's so interesting to me how much that process can totally change the way that a film score feels where you have uh, a cue that comes in on this character's look versus this character's look totally changes the meaning of the cue because all of a sudden if it's if it comes in over his look versus her look it feels like his frustration and then if it's actually her look it's more her sadness about how he's acting and you know it, it's really all about the perspective and so much of the perspective really comes into play when you look at when the music enters and what it's entering underneath. Uh, once we kind of have those in and out points, it's a bit easier to to move forward. But that's definitely the first step with a director that can be really huge in shaping the film. I mean, like a film with, with not very much music or spotted one way uh, would feel very differently than the film spotted a different way. Let's move from film to dance for a moment. You've done some collaborations with Alvin Ailey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always found that dancers have a really special relationship with music. Yeah, totally. They hear music differently, even from musicians. I remember playing as a rehearsal pianist for some ballet, mm-hmm. and I couldn't track what they were doing. I couldn't count it, but they could. They have a really special pulse. And as a result, I found that dancers are actually more open to music sometimes than musicians themselves, Mm. which is to say they can embrace the avant-garde more easily than, say, like, for example, I've heard a lot more Ligeti (laughs) in dance than I have in the concert hall. Mm -hmm. I really like that adventurous spirit about dancers. Now, Alvin Ailey, one of the great troops in our nation. Sure. If people haven't seen it, Revelations, I think, is required viewing for all Americans. Oh, yeah. But I'd love to hear about your experience working on music with Ailey. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, one of those experiences that, that I feel very thankful to have been a part of. I got involved because of a, a choreographer and dancer named Kyle Abraham, who's an incredible choreographer, and he has his own company uh, called Abraham in Motion. And we had worked together with his company a few years prior, or maybe like two years prior to the Alvin Ailey project. And then he asked me to participate in this piece he was doing for Alvin Ailey, which had to do with families that were affected by incarceration. At a the point where the piece of music that I compose comes in, because uh, it's, it's a bit of a medley at the beginning, it's more of like a sound design type of thing. And then it goes into a piece that I compose, and then it goes into uh, a piece by the singer Laura Mvula. But the section that I compose eventually has dialogue that comes in over the music, where you hear the sound of people talking about their experience with incarceration. So some of it was a woman who was talking about her father who was incarcerated and, and what it meant for her her entire life to grow up with him in jail and visiting him in jail and how that affected their family. and. There was um, another woman, uh, she herself was incarcerated, and she talked about how that impacted her family and her daughter and their relationship and and how they had always been really distant. And then I I believe her daughter ended up getting incarcerated, and and that really affected their relationship. And um, it was really kind of difficult to listen to, but but really moving experiences that were recounted in these uh, little snippets and so the music was really just trying to support that first and foremost and then Kyle really just choreographed around that but like you said I think I've always been fascinated by working on a piece with a choreographer or a dance company and having an idea of what it should feel like and and the emotion that's tied to it and then bringing in 
a piece of music and then having them respond to it, it's always fascinating which aspects of the music really stand out to them. Like there are times where, especially with live performance, with that one, it was a recorded piece that we then, you know, they then performed to the recording. But before, when I worked with Kyle's company, we did live performances. And so there were moments where as a jazz musician, I feel like I always want a little bit of space to improvise or a little bit of space to keep things malleable, which Kyle is also always open to. But there would be these moments in the piece where, you know, I might have done something on the first iteration of it that was an improvisatory accidental moment that they then really key into with the choreography. And all of a sudden we do a second version of it and I don't play that thing. And Kyle's like, wait, when you played this one chord right here, that actually gave us a, a cue to go to this next section. So that's really important that you play that one <laughs> that one chord there. And yeah, like you said, that that's always been fascinating to me to see how how they pick up on like little rhythms or little like uh, moments in the music that are as musicians sometimes we can kind of let go by or or, or take for granted, and they they really obsess about every little detail, which is really fascinating. That's it, isn't it? It's taking things for granted that you don't realize that they're picking up on. Yeah. I remember my tempos had to be so tight <laughs> because it would be like, hey, Ben, you can't drag here because they're literally standing on their heads. <laughs> the curtain open, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So I imagine that there you'd have to tamper your jazz instincts a little bit because they're going to be banking on certain cues. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like having very, very specific moments where we can, you know, improve. Or, or keep it fresh every time, but otherwise, yeah, we're making it really predictable so they can they can um, not be thinking about it and focus on the on the movement. Okay, let's move from dance to your experience with video game music. I spoke a bit with Christopher Tin in a previous episode, and we talked about how you know you have through composed music. But then often in video games, you have, let's just say, chunks of music that have to be adaptive. Mm. Have you had experience in more adaptive scoring or was your experience in the video game world all through composed? It was a bit more adaptive uh, just to have those um, loops that that are able to exist under any sort of interactive portion of the game. What's really interesting is that the only games I've composed for Madden games, the, the football video game, but they have a narrative section to the game now where you can create your own player and then you go through the process of getting drafted. Uh, and throughout that process, you can make decisions like what college do you want to go to or what what do you do with your best friend if he gets picked by another team and you and you want to go to another team and like really intricate things. I mean, there's even a moment where you're at the tryouts and your best friend starts cracking jokes and you have the choice of either listening to him and laughing along or, or telling him to shut up and paying attention to, to the coach. And in those moments, you know, the music is supposed to just kind of loop while you, while the player is making this decision. And then when they make the decision, something's supposed to happen with the music to really signify that shift. And so it was really interesting to kind of compose in layers and be mindful or aware of what layers could be added to create different feelings. And I didn't really decide how those layers are, are um, put together. That's something that they do on the game side. But on the composition side, it's really about composing something that has these removable layers so that the track can maybe have two or three different versions of it that sounds like there's progression happening you know it might just have like just a simple bass and drum thing and then uh, after he makes a the decision then all of a sudden it, it uh shifts and 
there's like a keyboard part that comes in and then another decision's made and then the whole beat shifts to a, a B section to the beat. And so all those things are, are thought about in the composition process. And then I just deliver all the stems and they figure out how to uh, put it into the engine so that it, it reacts to each of those choices. But um, yeah, it's such a fascinating way to think about composition. And each iteration has to sound like it's the only iteration. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's really interesting. Madden's come a long way from uh Madden 91 with those pixelated dudes marching down yeah. the field. Yeah. Hail Marys and outposts. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. That's like the only game I used to play. So I've, I've seen most, most iterations of Madden. It's pretty cool to see how far they've come. That must be nice to put your stamp on such a franchise that you've probably been associated with from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thinking of my childhood playing that game is pretty cool <laughs> to be a part of it. So many hours lost on the C button. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, maybe that's why I was ready for the job. You never know. That's, that's preparation. I was training for this my whole life, you guys. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Parents are not composers, but they're in the Hollywood game. There's some precedent here for you doing what you do. I wonder, what did you learn from them about how to move within these worlds? You've done some very high-profile projects. Green Book, Dear White People, Madden. These are bulletproof titles. So is there something that you learned from mom and dad about moving within Hollywood or within these circles and how to position yourself to be able to take advantage of these sorts of opportunities? The the biggest thing really is um, just how much my parents expected of me, I guess, to be honest. Like, I think that it's um, something that goes into um, race, to be honest. I think that both my parents, neither of them went to college and they decided they wanted me to play piano before I was born just because they thought from a very early age that that would be something that could help their kids succeed in the world and, and get into better institutions for education and things like that if, if my parents wouldn't be able to afford it. But on top of that, I think that, you know, there's always that mentality that um, as a young black man or woman, you have to be 10 times better than, than everyone else just to just to barely get by. Yes. And so, yeah, my parents always, uh, they expected me to have a plan for my life from a very early age. I think I was like 12 when they were asking me what I was going to do in college, what I was going to do after college. And when I first started talking about this plan of going to school for jazz piano and touring as a jazz artist and then transitioning into film scoring, a lot of that came from my parents really imploring me to have a goal for myself or like a, a vision for myself as far as what my life would would be. Hmm. And then on top of that, like you know, my, my parents have never really been, they've always, always kept me humble in a really great way where one of my favorite stories to tell is a few years ago, I played at the White House during Obama's administration and for the International Jazz Day. And it's this huge concert with like an all-star cast, everybody from Sting to Aretha Franklin to Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, all these people. And so every song, they put together a different band for that song because there's so many musicians. And 
the day of the concert, I'm excited because my dad gets to go to the White House and going to be able to meet so many amazing people there. And and as we're heading to the concert, my dad was like, so how many how many songs are you playing tonight? And I was like, I'm playing two. And he's like, oh, oh just two, huh? you know i think that like uh even back in high school you know they used to always push me to make sure that i was trying my absolute best and and trying to to be the best in their mind and um and i feel like that's something that's served me really well where it's very hard for me to accept mediocrity from myself with any aspect of my career but especially with film composing so i'm always aspiring to even though i'm 32 at this point, whenever I'm writing a score, I'm comparing myself to John Williams or Thomas Newman or these legends in my mind, because that's that's really what it's about. Are those your guys, John Williams, Thomas Newman? Yeah, those are two huge ones for me. I mean, uh, who are your big film composer heroes? Yeah, John Williams is definitely the biggest one. I feel like, you know, especially being a kid in the 90s, I feel like you can't escape becoming a John Williams fan if you grew up in that era. And then my dad, of course, being a movie fan and and his favorite films were films in the 70s, like Jaws and Star Wars and, you know, Indiana Jones and all of that. Yeah, Thomas Newman had a, had a huge impact on me. James Newton Howard and John Powell, both I really listened to a lot. Uh, same with Howard Shore. Quincy, just as a, an icon and, and what he was doing in all these different spaces. As the man with the golden touch, right? Yeah. Everything Quincy puts his fingerprints on is going platinum. Yeah, and I think the thing I always loved and admired about him is that, you know, I mean, he studied with Nadia Boulanger for composition. I mean, like you can hear his knowledge and experience with orchestration and composition as a man that started off as a jazz trumpet player and, and a jazz arranger to then have that much command over the orchestra, uh, I think is something that I've always been inspired by. So yeah, I'd say those are definitely the big ones for me. It sounds to me like this transition from jazz to film composing was, yeah, these hundred dollar door gigs are great, but <laughs> what are you really going to do? For me, film scoring really was because piano was always a medium for expression like the, the thing that made me fall in love with piano was the fact that i could improvise and express myself and be in a certain emotional headspace go to the piano play and move through that and my dad was so into film and tv especially being a writer that i very early on recognized that oh wow i can listen to these scores and feel the same emotions that i feel from the movie just with the music and i don't need to see the movie for me to feel that and that's an actual job to be able to, you know, translate these emotions into a full orchestral score. And so that plan was more so just me being like, I really want to explore being a performing artist and a jazz musician and all of that. But like my love of music comes from its ability to to express emotion. And, and that being a profession is, is something that that always stuck with me. If there's a Venn diagram between your jazz piano and your film composing, what's the overlap there? How does jazz help or infect the composition? And how does your knowledge of scoring infect your jazz? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's, it's all storytelling, right? I think that what's so interesting with my process with film scoring is usually I'm watching something and trying to absorb how it feels and then going to often the piano to start to figure out and play with how I can represent that emotion musically and to explore that jazz just provides you with like incredible facilities to be able to do that. I mean, it used to always fascinate me going to Juilliard that like, I actually, I taught ear training for a while and 
and even in in the ear training classes that I taught or ear training classes I was in, it was always fascinating to me that these musicians that could blow me out of the water when it came to technical abilities could play something incredibly proficiently and not know what key they were in or not know like, you know, or I could play something on piano and they wouldn't be able to sing it back to me. And like that skill set as a jazz musician is required. It was always interesting to me that that people look at jazz musicians as just like playing around or messing around or this kind of lackadaisical attitude essentially. And then meanwhile, here we are like looking at a set of chord changes and like improvising things on the spot. And that, that requires so much theoretical knowledge and harmonic knowledge and all of that. So I find that that's incredibly helpful on the film scoring side, where if I need to make something up on the spot, either in the compositional process or even there are times where we're on the on the scoring stage in a studio and the director's like, you know what, I actually don't really like that one moment there anymore. And as a jazz pianist, it's very easy for me to go to the piano and figure out any other way to like re reharmonize or reorganize that uh, melodic statement. So I feel like that's how it how the jazz helps the film scoring and then vice versa, I think just because, you know, as a film composer, you are again trying to tell a story. You have to be mindful of pace. Like you don't just start off with like a hundred percent of the idea right at the beginning of the cue. You usually try to introduce little by little and let the picture lead, uh, which requires so much patience on the composition side and and then when you go back to, you know, any sort of performance with that type of mindset, it's it's much easier to pace yourself and to think about the story that you're telling. And and also just being a bit more adventurous with harmonies and, and different things like that, I feel all come from my experience with film scoring and studying the film scores that I've studied and, and seeing how that then leads into my piano playing. I think the point you made there about people having the perception that jazz musicians are playing around is an important one because I think what it speaks to is that we don't see the behind the scenes, right? If I go to a jazz club, I don't see the six hours a day of the sax player like playing his horn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And running through scales and arpeggios, working out that melody line. All I see is the result of all that preparation. So what looks like play is actually improvisation that comes from all of this practice and all of this discipline and all of this pre-thought, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think ditto with the film score, right? Most people don't know that, okay, we're, we're going to sit down with the director and say and figure out what music is needed. And then determining what your palette is for each film based on what the film is giving you. Maybe that latter notion you could speak a bit to. Like, you obviously don't have a fixed scoring before you see a film. How do you determine from what you see what sort of instrumentation will be required beyond suggestions from the director? Like you just said, it definitely starts with, with a conversation with the director. For me, I usually will even go as far as to ask the director what music they're into outside of score material just so that we can start to um, understand uh, and speak the same language. I mean, I think it's always been interesting to me. One of my first projects that I scored, there was a cue that I was working on that the director, every time I submitted it, felt like it was just too sad. And then I totally changed the cue and then she felt like it was now not feeling sad enough and it was too far away from what I'd written the first time. And the solution ended up being just simply changing the piano to a keyboard. And that small change 
all of a sudden made the director immediately feel like, yep, that's, that's the right feeling. And that was the moment that I realized, oh, wow, like for this director, the piano feels like an incredibly sad sounding instrument, and which is you know, pretty common. But I think that that opened the door for me for understanding how much this is subjective and, and how one director I worked with might hate the sound of, of woodwinds. And then another director I work with, like, that's the only thing he wants to hear is like making sure that we hear clarinet and, and oboe. And uh, <laughs> those types of things, I think, come down to having conversations beforehand, either about the music that we're already working on, or sometimes the temp music that they have in the film, um, or again, music outside of the context of film. But that can be really helpful to start to decide what the palette is going to be um uh, along with the story itself you know like are we what time period are we set in or is there something about the story that immediately tells us what we should be feeling like when they see us the the show i did with ava duvernay like my initial conversation with her when i first was up for the project i watched the first episode and was so emotionally moved by what i was seeing with these young boys that the first idea i had was to take beautiful instruments and have players play the most like horrific sounds they could find on them. So if, you know, having a cellist come in and playing weird sounds on the cello or a saxophonist come in and play weird sounds on the saxophone. And then I took those sounds and morphed them even more with effects and things like that. But to me, that was like a representation of what was being done to these young boys and how they were being tortured and how they were being manipulated. And if we would manipulate these instruments would that give us a similar type of feeling? And that's something that she really responded to uh, and that we ended up doing for the project. So often it's, it's um, yeah, looking at, is there anything about the story that immediately tells us, um, give, gives me a clue to, to what could be done musically or instrumentation wise, and then also working with the director to see what their preferences are uh, as far as instrumentation goes. interesting solution and a very subtle one that might only read on a subconscious level right yeah the mutations of of instrumentation yeah definitely you mentioned period which i i mean we gotta drop in something about bridgerton (laughs) yeah yeah, for sure of course it's an interesting landscape because it's a period drama that in a way has no respect for period is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, just being really specific with how it represents the period, for sure. Yeah, and throwing rules out the window. <laughs> In that same way, your music throws the rules out the window. There are nods to Vivaldi and some more Baroque maneuvers, but they're also a bit subversive. Mm-hmm. What was your strategy behind that musical concept? Yeah, a lot of it was inspired by Alex Patsavas, the music supervisor on the show. I mean, she's... A legend. I mean, she broke so many bands, um, usually with Shondaland shows. I mean, all the way back to Grey's Anatomy. I mean, she was known for breaking like indie artists on that show and people discovering music through that show. And so with this show, uh, pretty early on, she had the idea of presenting covers of pop songs by different 
classical groups. I mean, it's something that's already been in the you know universe for a while with right. Vitamin String Quartet or like these like wedding bands that have found ways to cover pop songs in more of a classical way. Or I'm thinking of those great Radiohead covers on Westworld. Yeah. Through the player piano. Yeah, totally. Yeah, the Ramin did it. Yeah, it's, it's already something that people have explored a bit, but I feel like it was so effective here because it immediately puts you mentally into the into the mindset and, and position of these people and, and specifically these young women. I think of like episode one where uh, Ariana Grande's Thank You Next starts playing when the young girls walk into the ball and that song immediately ha- gives you a feeling and context for how these women feel in this space. How does it feel to be like basically like a show pony, like, you know, being shown around and like having to present yourself to these people to be chosen, quote unquote, and, and how frustrating and annoying of a process that is. And But I love that that song gives you the empowered female perspective of like, I don't want to deal with this essentially, or, or like, I don't have time to deal with anybody that that's not going to be worth my time. That sound was really helpful in, in creating the sound of the score where I wanted to take as much of a traditional instrumentation as possible, but having the rhythms and harmonies sometimes be more inspired by pop music uh, than anything else, which, which really helped unlock the sound there. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard music by Chris Bowers. In order, Dr. Shirley's Luggage from the original motion picture soundtrack to Green Book. Player from the Madden NFL game series by EA Sports. It's in the game. And Police Pursuit from the Netflix limited series When They See Us. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief at ListenMusicCulture.com. Our outro music is Flawless, My Dear, by Chris Bowers from the Netflix original series Bridgerton. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>